Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationships with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Sex, the Spirit, Short Stories in the South, a conversation with writers April Ayers Lawson and Jamie Quattro. This is Rewrite Radio. You are here. This is is Rewrite Radio. Radio, This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. My name is Jennifer Hardy-Williams, and I teach at the English Department at Calvin College. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features a conversation between the writers April Ayers Lawson and Jamie Quattro, hosted by Amy Frickholm. Titled Sex, the Spirit, Short Stories in the South, this conversation takes up the complicated work of writing about religious experience and sexual experience. It may not be appropriate for all listeners. Jamie Quattro writes fiction, poetry, and essays, and her work has appeared in publications such as Tin House, The New York Times Book Review, and The Kenyan Review. Her first book, I Want to Show You More, was a New York Times notable book, an NPR Best Book of 2013, and an Indie Next pick. The collection was also a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction, the Georgia Townsend Fiction Prize, and the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize. Her first novel, Fire Sermon, was released in January 2018. A contributing editor at Oxford American, Quattro teaches in the MFA program at Swanee, the University of the South, and lives on Lookout Mountain, Georgia. April Ayers Lawson is the author of Virgin and Other Stories, which was named a Best Book of the Year by Vice, Baum, Southern Living, and Refinery29, and has been translated into German, Italian, Norwegian, and Spanish. The title story in the collection won the Plimpton Prize for Fiction in 2011, and was also named a favorite short story by Flavorwire and anthologized in The Unprofessionals, New American Writing from the Paris Review. She was a 2015 Writing Fellow at Yaddo, has lectured in the Creative Writing Department at Emory University, and was the 2016-2017 Keenan Visiting Writer at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. From Festival 2018, here's April Ayers Lawson and Jamie Quattro. I wanted to start with the South, because I thought that could give us kind of a geographical landscape that we could all then share to talk about, to, to understand what it is that you're, that you're doing in your fiction. So I wanted to start by asking if you could talk about what South, which South, there are obviously lots of them, um, that you find most engaging for your fiction. I am not going to be good at answering this question since um, when... I don't think of myself as a Southern writer, even though I'm from the South. Um, and when I'm writing my stories... I never think about um, like how I'm writing about the South, and that's because I've always lived in the South. Um, so I have—I don't have a strong basis for comparison. I mean, of course, there are like, you know, traveling and, and movies and, and television and all that, but um, I just have never actually 
for an extended period of time lived anywhere um, except for a semester in London <laughs> um, when I was not in the South. And so um, I just sort of write what I'm used to being around and just have never thought of myself as um, being a Southern writer writing about the South. It only ever seems that like that to other people. And I think that it reminds me of how, um, you know, like a you don't hear your own accent, but other people do. Um, and But I think Jamie might be able to give a better answer to that then. No, I think that's a really, actually a great way to open it because I have the opposite experience in the sense that I'm not from the South. Um, I'm a transplant. I moved there 13 years ago um, from the West originally, from, from Tucson. And so there's something about what you're saying that rings really true to me in that when I moved to the South, I started noticing all of these things, and I would say things to people who'd lived there forever, say, did you know there's Confederate trenches, like, on Lula Lake Road? And they're like, what are you talking about? There's a plaque there, saying these were hospital trenches during the Civil War. And it's like, the people had, who'd lived there for so long had kind of almost become hardened or inured to, the, to all of the typographical distinctions that, that were around them and the historical distinctions, whereas a transplant, I, I was seeing everything with fresh eyes, and I was seeing so many things I wanted to write about that... I think it just kind of became old hat for people who'd, who'd lived there and they'd stopped seeing it. Um, so, yeah, my relationship to the South is one... I, when people say, well, do you, do you consider yourself a Southern writer? I would say, well, you have to define... That depends how you define Southern writer. If it's someone who is born and raised in the South um, or who historically has you know, family roots in the South, like Eudora Welty's parents were from the South. Um, but, you know, she, was, she sort of had that double access to the Midwest and to the South. I'm not a Southern writer, but if you define it as someone who's concerned with a certain set of thematic things such as race, religion, the grotesque, the Gothic, the Civil War, those, those are all things that I am deeply involved in in my work. So in, in that sense, yes, I am a Southern writer. Both of you frequently um, engage sexual fantasy and sexual experience and then juxtapose that against some kind of religious experience or cultural expectation of religious experience, something um, taking that juxtaposition, which is, is kind of unusual in um, contemporary American fiction, that juxtaposition. And both of you do it. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about what interests you. Why are you doing that? And what, what makes that interesting for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I do it naturally because I was raised very conservatively. Um, and uh, I also went to, my first degree, I went to a private uh, Christian college that was um, pretty fundamentalist. And um, just, so I come from like a background of um, just feeling very much like um, people uh, have, have told me very strongly like how I should see everything um, with like not a whole lot of gray area. <laughs> um, and so I guess, Getting into fiction and writing was a way for me to sort of explore like um, ambiguity that I knew existed and explore the complexity of situations that were so often as I grew up like reduced to me into being something like very simple when they weren't actually that simple. Um, so the tension is like inherent in me, and so that's why it's in my work. And um, what was the oh, and the other thing that um, has sort of defined my work for me is that. Um, and I, I've written about this recently, is that when I was um, a child, um, like, you know, I had a rape experience, and so um, 
that also like within the context of like that happening and being raised as I was, um, being told over and over like how bad it was to um, like to have sex before I was married and then like no one knowing that I was like raped, it was like, you know, it was like a big, it was a lot to um, sort of process and I think it just naturally, these tensions naturally came through when I wrote fiction. Yeah, I think I have a very similar, I think we had very similar upbringings, although um, the church I was raised in was very strict about the rules. My parents weren't, were not as strict, so I think that kind of gave me a little bit more of a, of a grace feeling like I didn't, um, I actually think it's partly why, I've, why I'm still, you know, hanging in there with Jesus, <laughs> as I always say to people, is that, you know, I didn't have this sense from my parents, too, that, like, God is all about condemnation. But yes, I was very much raised in a conservative evangelical home, um, and as you know, those of you who've grown up that way, you also do a lot of Bible reading when you grow up that way, and you start to read the Bible and realize there's a lot of sexual content. And I, I think I grew up with this kind of dissonance, this disparity between what I, what I was told and what the rules were and what I was seeing as the metaphorical language um, in the Bible, which is you know God's love for his church characterized in, in sexual terms. It's bride and bridegroom. And, and I just think that that kind of natural, that that cognitive dissonance is something that's always been in me. And then as you start writing, it's not like you think, well, I'm going to write about the intersections of sexuality and spirituality. And you like come to the table with this subject matter. You just start writing out of your obsessions and your wounds or whatever it is. And I think those themes emerge ultimately. And then later people tell you, well, your book does this. And they, these are your themes. And then you have to answer these questions. But I, and you have to go, like, what, what, what is it? What is my psychology? Like, why, why do I do this? I, I don't know. So it's part of me that says, I don't really know. This is just what, when I start hearing sentences, these are what they're about. Sometimes not, though. I don't plan to write about sex very much after this. <laughs> I don't want to have to keep talking. I said that same thing. <laughs> um, that makes me curious about the first short story that either one of you wrote. Like, when, when, what was... What was the content or the nature of your first short story, whether it became a published piece or, or it didn't? Um, what, what was that? Um, my first story, um, it was for this creative writing class that I was taking as an elective for my English graduate degree. And um, I remember thinking, I was terrified of taking that class. Like, I wanted to take it, but I also thought, I don't know if I can write a story. What if I can't write a story? And... Um, I remember it was based on my uncle, who's dead now, who, like, co like, he collected a bunch of antiques. Like, he was obsessed with antiques, and he had, like, several storage buildings full of them, and they were all over his room and the house. And it was basically, like, some character based on my uncle and him being befriended by a little boy, and the little boy then tried to set up my uncle with his mother. And, like, I think it had to do with, like, me wanting my uncle to, like, have, a, like, a happy relationship or something because he didn't at the time. And that was my first, like, story writing impulse was to write this uh, world in which, like, he finally found the right person and connected with them. It's much more cheerful than when I write. <laughs> I love that answer that she gave that, like, you, she wrote what she wanted to happen or you wrote, like, something into being. Um, so how far back do we, we want to go with this question? Because, because I was thinking, like, the very first short story I ever published was I was in um, graduate school. I was getting my master's in English, but every time I, I was kind of getting sick of doing the English thing, and I would go and write these stories, and 
Um, I wrote this short story called Highland Vista, and it was about a, a girl at a swimming pool who the lifeguard, she like had a crush on, and then when the lifeguard crushed back on her, she was like repulsed by him. And he was kind of a salty, and it was weird. And I got a call that that short story um, was going to be published in the Student Literary Journal. And I'd also just gotten into Princeton PhD program. And I got the two calls on the same day. And I, with the Princeton thing, I was like, great, I'm going, to, I'm going to Princeton. And with the short story call, I put on my running shoes ran out the door, ran the two miles to where my husband was playing soccer. The MBA law school had a soccer tournament going and was jumping up and down like, I'm getting a story published in the student literary journal. And that should have been a clue to me that those two responses that like I should not have gone on with, you know, done this PhD business. But um, so I was thinking about that story. But then I started thinking further back when April was talking. Actually, the first story I ever wrote, I was in um, second grade and it was called The Sad Day and the happy day. And I remember this because, well, I know this because my mom saved it. And it was about a little girl who lived in Tucson, Arizona, and who had never seen snow, and really just wished that it would snow. And every day was sad, and then one night she went to bed and prayed that it would snow. And the next day she woke up in the morning, and all the saguaro cacti were covered in snow, and that was the happy day. And so it was that same impulse, right? And I, and I do think that that's the primary impulse of the story writer when we're, when we're just little children, is, is to see things that are wrong in the world or that are deeply unsettling to us and to try to make them right again. And to me, that's, that's also really like Christian and really like a kind of almost a godlike thing to be able to do, like a little image bearer thing to be able to do, to to um, restore God's creation in some way through art. I really love those answers. They really return us to like sort of this twisted way that we we are doing restorative work by not doing restorative work. And so it's a very kind of twisted thing that you both, that I see in both of your work. There's reconciliation, there's redemption, but it's, um, but it doesn't come to us quite in, you know, a form that we can recognize like, I prayed for snow and there was snow. It's at the same time, there is this kind of redemptive work that's going on in both of your fiction. So I wonder if you could talk about now as mature writers or you know, as you continue to mature, but where you see yourselves right now, how do you know that you have a story? Like, What is it that tells you, yes, this one is worth going forward with? And maybe since poor April has to sit right next to me, I'll just I'll hand the microphone over to Jamie and we'll go this way this time. We'll go clockwise. Um, there's two answers. The first answer is I don't. I get so sick of something I've written until I can't look at it anymore, and then I send it to one of my trusted readers, and I'm like, this is crap, isn't it? <laughs> and then they either tell me, like, yes, it's crap, or no, this is, you know, something that's really good. So it, in, in some senses, I have to really rely on my um, trusted readers to, to know how do I know when I want to work on something and when I want to pursue it and keep going with it is sound. Um, there's something for me when I'm writing about the sound or a cadence or a lyricism that starts to happen as I compose that um, becomes a, a driver. It's not usually because I'm super interested in the plot. That's interesting because I am really different. Um, and though tone, like tone is an important thing for me. Like if I have to hit on the right tone, so it's similar in that way. But um, I guess... I go try to write so much that just doesn't interest me enough. Um, like it might interest me for a few paragraphs, and then I'm just sort of like, "Why am I writing about this? I don't care about this," and like start something else. And so for me, if 
I'm interested enough in anything to keep writing it and become obsessed with it, then I know that I have something. And I just keep following that until I'm done. Like I, Yeah, it's basically just like when I start to feel obsession and I start working on it for longer and longer, and um, when I'm away from it, just sort of having thoughts about like what I need to do to it, then that thing I always finish, and that's what I end up publishing. So that, I mean, I really haven't published that much either, but it doesn't happen to me that often. But when it does, it's like this really strong, like powerful obsession. And um, I, I like it, but it also can be like really upsetting. Um, but it does tell me like what is a story and what's not. I wanted to ask, and I'm not quite sure how to ask this question. I've, I was wrestling with it in different ways. But I wanted to ask about um, female sexual agency in both of your work. When and how, what would you say that there's some kind of cultural criticism that you're working on around the issue of fem female sexual agency? When and how in our culture do women get to act um, and uh, how does how does sexual agency work? And April, in your work, I know sometimes this has a lot to do with sexual abuse and this question of agency and how and how that works. I'd love to hear you talk about that. And I know Jamie, sometimes in your work, it, it's around sexual violence and questions about how women are act in situations um, where there's sexual violence. And then at the intersection, April, in in, um, in Virgin, you use that quote from um, Margaret Atwood where she says, uh, "Women." Um, Men are terrified that they'll be humiliated. Women are terrified that they'll be killed. Uh, and I, I'm curious how that quotation works in both of your work and about female agency and sexuality in that. And I know that's kind of a convoluted question. That's why I tried it a bunch of different ways. But then I just thought, I'm just throw it all out there and just see what you'll do with it. Either one of you. I don't, it doesn't matter. You want to answer this? <laughs> I am thinking how to answer this, and I'm not going to answer it exactly right, but, um, okay, like, agency. I get, I'm thinking that maybe, too, when you say this, it makes me, the last story, the Margaret Abbott quote is from the last story in my book, which is, like, a novella, and in that story, um, the female character, she thinks she wants to have sex with this guy that she's sort of, like, in a work relationship with, like, he's her art dealer, but then as soon as it starts... It's, she's terrified. She's also a survivor of, like, sexual abuse, and uh, when... You know, people, those of you, if, you know, who've, who have been sexually abused before, especially, like, as children, um, pro probably some of you have, because it's, like, one in, I think it's about, like, one in six people. Um, so, uh, people who, that, that, that have, has happened to, um, a lot of times, if you get really scared in a sexual situation, you actually have a freeze response and shut down. Um, so, in that particular story, it's, like, the man begins to do something that she doesn't expect that's very violent. Um, and at that point, she just sort of shuts down, but she doesn't try to say no or stop him and just kind of lets herself get, like, raped all night. And um, the, so I guess in terms of... I, I, it's hard for me to answer that question exactly about agency because I, I guess what's happening in that story is that, like, she is... Her freeze response is taking over, and it's the smarter survivalist thing to just keep this person happy and not upset him. And um, you know, and there is a lot of people who have been sexually abused go into what they call it autopilot, um, and they just sort of like like let this happen because they think it's easier for the other person, the aggressor, to just sort of be 
um, be pleased, they will be nicer to the person that they're doing it to if they just sort of go along with it. So that's kind of writing about that and not necessarily like trying to write about more broadly like women's agency, but it was more like a response of being um, a survivor of sexual abuse and um, also just, well in that particular story too, she was in an unusual location and didn't know how to get out. Um, so that figured into it too, but um, yeah, like it had to do with like the freeze response. Um, if that does that make sense? It, Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this quote that you know, when when women are sexually assaulted, they're afraid for their lives, and men are afraid for their egos or their embarrassment, or you know, um, I think that really that really rings true. I, I have a friend who is a male who was, I was just telling April this last night, who was sexually assaulted by a woman, but he didn't call it assault. And, and you know, I won't describe the, the situation, but I asked him why he didn't report her, and he said, I just, I wasn't afraid. I just threw her off me, and she left. And, you know, if you reversed that, I don't think a woman would, would be able to do that. And so there is, there is a physical imbalance there when it comes to agency. As far as my own work, when you say I write about sexual violence, I'm also thinking about that because are you referring to the marital rape? So, so in my novel, in Fire Sermon, there's, there's one scene where the man, and he coerces her in other ways, but there's one scene where he actually um, forces, forces sex physically. And the woman does this thing you're talking about where she kind of rationalizes, if I can just breathe through this and get through it, then we'll avoid all of these other um, repercussions. Um, so she does not take agency in that moment. And the second thing with agency, with, with specifically to fire sermon, I think that I've, I've gotten comments from people is, why doesn't she leave the marriage? Why does she stay in it? And what I have to point out is the complexity of that and, and that the novel um, ends, okay, I'm, this is such a spoiler warning, the end of the novel is all in future tense. Temporally, she's in a space of not knowing if she is going to leave or not. And not a lot of readers notice the tense shift at the end, but it, it switches into there will be grandchildren. She's explaining to her therapist, her interlocutor, it's kind of an unnamed, it could be a therapist, it could be not, but explaining um, what the, her vision, her intention for her future is. It isn't actually meant to be what happens. So I think there are a lot of readers who think, well, she didn't take agency, she didn't leave, but actually... Who knows? Maybe she still will. Fire sermon part deux. <laughs> After the movie comes out, right? I wondered about writing from the perspective, both of you at exactly the same moment, more or less, in your short story collections, write from the perspective of a teenage boy. So at April's, in April's collection, perspectives kind of vary for a while. In Jamie's, you follow, you follow female um, protagonists for a while, and and it plays around. It, it messes with perspective in different ways, but at kind of exactly the same moment, you both have a teenage boy um, who, um, let's see, how did I put it? Um, a teenage boy who suddenly has some sexual secrets, and then that kind of plays out in his um, in his in the rest of the world. And I wonder if you could talk about writing from the perspective of a teenage boy. What, what did you, what, what process did you begin to enter that perspective and, and how did you inhabit it and what did you learn from doing that? So she's, I think you're referencing the story called Sinkhole. So it's about a 15-year-old boy. He's a champion cross-country runner. 
um, expected to do great things in college, but he has a problem, and that is he has an anxiety disorder that manifests as a sinkhole in his chest that expands open, and he has to lie down and do a gesture. So it's, so it's an OCD disorder, really, and he has to do this gesture to make the sinkhole close, and he's fairly certain he'll die if he lets the sinkhole get too big because it'll wrap around his heart and it'll stop beating. Um, people often ask, how autobiographical is your work? If you're at my talk this morning, you know this, and I would act, the real answer is that is, that is the most autobiographical story. Um, I have struggled with an anxiety disorder at one point in my life. And um, so the fact that I wrote about it, it, I put it into the voice and into the body of a 15-year-old boy was because it was close to me. And I often tell readers and students, um, don't, when, you, when you recognize a character, you look at the characters that are farthest from the author if you're wondering what might be most autobiographical. Uh, so that is, that's why I did that. I also have four children, and they were all teenage. Well, no. No, I take that back. When I wrote that story, two were teenagers and two weren't. There were, my house was full of teenagers all the time um, with their friends over. And I'm also a runner. So this, it was like this nuclear fusion of things, and I thought, I'm going to write this story and like really write about this, what it's like to experience an anxiety kind of panic attack disorder. Um, I love sinkhole, and I also want to hear more about the anxiety disorder later. I'm really interested. Um, yeah, I love that story, and I love how you use like kids' disorder in that story and the hard thing. Um, the, my writing about uh, the, the teenage boy, it was like, that was one of my really the early stories, like the first draft of it, and I was in school, and I was married at the time, and um, I just thought, like, I really need to know what it's like to be a boy to be a writer. And, like, it was just this, I guess, like, a man, too, was, like, a preoccupation. So I just started asking my ex-husband, like, or my then-husband, like, all these questions um, about what it was like to be a boy and what it was like to be a man. And just, like, really as personal as I could get. Um, it was even to where I was like, what is it like when you see a woman? And what is it like when you see a woman's body? Like, it just all these questions. Um, and I didn't, of course, I didn't use it all for that story, but I used it in other stories. But it was basically, I'm just a lot of curiosity about being... Uh, what I noticed, too, is I thought that teenage boys were, could be funnier. Um, I mean, I don't think that's true now, but I mean, I think at the time, as like a young female writer, I felt as if I would be freer to be funny if I were a teenage boy in the story. Does that make sense? If I were like seeing the world through his perspective and getting to be him, I think I had this... I think I had just this idea that like I didn't know how to be funny as... Um, a woman, but I could do it if I was like a boy or a man. Does that? And, I mean, I don't think that now, but that's just what I thought then. I'll say one more thing too. Um, stu students often, my students will often ask me questions about like, how do you write from the opposite gender? How do you write from another race? Or how do you write, you know, from a perspective that isn't yours? And I do think there's something. If you're writing from that like deeply human space, it kind of doesn't matter if you're writing from a male or a female perspective, like. It's just the human part. So writing, writing from a boy's or a man's, I've written some man perspectives, male perspective stories too. It didn't, it didn't seem that different to me than writing from a female perspective. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it just seemed like these are humans and these are human feelings. And if I focus my energies there, I could maybe make them either any gender I wanted. Does that make sense? kind of opens up an interesting thought experiment, like if we went through and just reversed the gender in a lot of these stories, what would happen? Like, what, what, would, what would we notice? I mean, it opens up a really interesting question about if the character in Sinkhole were female, a female runner, and went through the same 
kind of gestures to to say to save herself from that anxiety. You know, what would we learn? Or in the in the um, negative impacts of homeschooling, right? Isn't that the name of the ne- negative effects of homeschooling? Is the name of the story that that in which April is a um, is a teenage boy. Um, or writes from the perspective of a teenage boy, what would happen if that were a girl? I mean, it would be just a very interesting um, experiment, just a thought experiment, I think. And that kind of raises the question about, that both of you have written about in different ways, and Jamie talked about this morning, but I think it's worth just talking about a little bit more, and that is the relationship between your fiction and this other thing that we call, like, real life. So this intersection of, of the fictional worlds that you create and then the world that you inhabit. And I wonder if you could talk about, um, talk about that relationship and how fiction, what kind of effect fiction has on your own life or fiction writing has on your life and how it, how it shapes how you see the world and, and how you act in the world. I think, I guess, um, I don't do this as much now as I used to, but um, I definitely went through a phase where like everything that people were saying and everything I experienced, um, all of it, I was like, how can I use this for a story? And um, my brain used to do that all the time. Like I need to be like, you know, analyzing everything as it's happening and figuring out how I can use this. But it was also like sort of separating me from experience um, because if you do that all the time, it's like you're sort of putting something here between you and what you're actually experiencing. Um, so I kind of slacked off, stopped with that some. Um, and then I'm sort of answering your question in a really roundabout way, but um, I guess like with writing fiction or like any kind of writing, um, it makes me notice things that I didn't even realize I was noticing at the time. Like it sort of forces me to um, slow down and to re-experience things and to realize... Um, just things about life that um, I so often overlook because I am a pretty anxious person um, and I feel as if I'm always in a rush. I feel like I'm impatient way too much. Like I meditate now and that helps some, but um, yeah, like I'm always just sort of anxious about something, worried about something or analyzing something. And so when I'm writing fiction, it's like I have to sort of slow down and experience and, and notice these little details about life that I've been overlooking or taking for granted. That's so true. I, I would agree with all of that. I think there's this, when I'm in the work and when I'm really working deeply in a story, when I lift up my head and go out for a run or go engage in my normal life, I see differently. I'm noticing differently. It's like my ears are tuned. Eudora Welty spoke of her ears as magnets, as a writer's ears as magnets, kind of attracting things. And then it works in reverse. When I'm noticing, intentionally noticing, um, it will feed back into when I sit down at the page. It's when those two things are completely divorced from one another, as they are right now, um, but with having a book come out and being on book tour, I'm just, I'm not working. And so I'm not paying attention. I'm not paying attention to work, and I'm not paying attention to the world, and it seems to me a really subpar way to live. <laughs> I really can't wait to get back, get back to the work. Um, the other thing about life, I'll say, and this, this is just a really, really personal thing, when, when I was working on my first book and I had all the little children at home, there was a natural balance between the art and the life. And, and I didn't realize how important that was to me. It was just how it was. And I used to get annoyed with the kids. I'd be like, ugh. I have to stop writing at 2.30 and pick them up, and I have to, you know, not really. I mean, of course, I understand it was a gift, but, you know, it was, it was like a, 
if I was working, I was feeling guilty that I wasn't with my children more. And when I was with my children, I was feeling guilty that I wasn't working more. And I was just feeling constantly guilty all the time. And now I, I look back and I think, God, I just wish I could have been 100% present for both and just embraced the work when I had the work and embraced the children when I had the children. Because now that I don't have that, there are three are in college now, and one is um, 17, he's a junior. And I really find it's just too much time. I, like, I, need an, I need another job. I keep telling my husband I need something real life, something in my body. Like I need to go work at a bakery or I need to like, pick up an art form. I made stained glass in Barcelona last year. It was, it was an assignment for a magazine. And um, that was one of the happiest days of my life. It started at 8. I was done at 5. I, lived, I could not believe that many hours went by. And I was completely absorbed in, absorbed in the work the whole time. And I was so excited to write after that experience because I'd been in my body. So if you have any thoughts or suggestions for me, like if you're a contractor and you need someone to help build a house, or <laughs> come talk to me after. You heard it here, a writer who has too much time. Right here. Wow. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Not, I mean, I have plenty of work to fill that time. It's just I need something else to make that time better when I have it because it's just a pressure, yes, yes. And deadlines aren't enough anymore. They used to be. And now deadlines just drive me crazy and they don't help my work very much. Kind of raises another question that I wanted to ask you both about, you know, there are a lot of people here, I'm guessing, in this room who are aspiring writers, who, who long to write or find the time to write or however it works. I wonder if you could each talk a little bit about finding your footing as a writer. How did, how did that happen that you you came to claim this as something that was uh, valuable enough to give your life to, and, um, and then how did you go about making that real? Um, like I mentioned, I, did, I started on the English track, so I did a bachelor's in English. I, I, I'll go back further. I never remember a time I wasn't writing. Obviously, second grade, I was writing stories. It was just always what I was doing. I, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up, whenever, whenever anybody would ask me. I was a huge reader, I was a geek. That's all I did was read, read, read. And I honestly think that that reading impulse and that love of reading is like the first pr kind of primary indication that maybe, maybe writing might be your thing. I think they go hand in hand. Um, but yeah, I went the English track in college, did a master's in English, started a PhD in English, got pregnant, had four children in five years. And in the, those five years of kind of desperately in nap time or, you know, in between nursings, writing, I, my, I started working more on my fiction. And I thought, well, when the baby goes to kindergarten, I'll go back and I'll finish my PhD. That was the plan. But then by the time the baby went to kindergarten, I was all in with, I really want to do fiction. So I went and did a low-res MFA at Bennington College, where Lisa Cockrell goes, some other people here. Uh, and that was, that was the decision that really, because you find a community of people who take you seriously, who don't, you know, like your family's like, are you still trying to write, or are you still doing that writing thing? But these were people who took it seriously as a path, and as they'd done it, they knew how to get you into doing it, and um, so from then on, it was a little bit easier to, to claim it. Um, for me, I think that it started with being a really big reader. Um, I had this period of time when I was much younger, um, I guess I was in middle school, like the beginning of middle school, maybe for about two years, 
I just didn't talk at all at school. Like there was something wrong with me. And like I, I really like I didn't talk. Like if someone addressed me, sometimes I would, there would be no response at all. It'd just be like looking at them, or just sort of like trying to get away from them. Like I just did not talk. Like I had that condition. Um, I forgot the proper name. Selective mutism, and I think it must have been related to anxiety. I don't know. But like so during that time, I think to have a sense of connection, I was just reading all the time, um, and like. If there was nothing, if there were, was no like uh, book around for me to read, like I would just, you know, something like this, sort of, like on the table, I would just be like reading this, and like it would seem I just needed to be reading like all the time. It was really weird, and so um, then I got older and I wanted to write, but I thought I can't write, like I don't know how to write a story, and so I would do more visual art because um, I did always feel the art making impulse too. Um, but then it's like I was going to be a high school art teacher. I was in a degree program for that. And um, we were going around visiting the different classes and sort of observing them. And it just hit me like, I don't really want to do this. And <laughs> um, it, so that was, that was kind of hard at first because it was like, okay, like I'm in a graduate program for this and I know I don't want to do it. Um, and then somehow I was reading Henry James um, and... I figured I was working in the graduate studies department for like part-time money and I figured out looking at the programs I thought okay I can just do what I want to do anyway if I do this English degree because it's just like reading stuff and like you write about it and that's it and um, I wasn't really interested at that time in making money it was very detached from like what am I going to do with my life it was just like how will I stay in school as long as possible and um, so I did that, and then that led to taking a creative writing class. And then in the creative writing class, my teacher, um, oh, and then I read Virginia Woolf around then too. Like I read this Virginia Woolf story in a bookstore that for some reason it made me realize like, oh, I think I can write a story. Like something clicked and I figured out like I maybe could do it and took that class. And um, in the class, my teacher was, it was my teacher, like he said, um, after the class was over, I did, no, one more class with him, like a thesis thing. And then he said at the end of it, like, you need to get an MFA. Um, you need to keep doing this. And I, was, I didn't even know what MFA was. Um, like, I didn't know about that writers got these MFA degrees. Um, and so I just basically went along with what he told me, like, what program he was teaching at in the summer. It was low residency. And I just thought, like, okay, I'll do that. And um, it sounds like really like a ridiculous way of coming about to writing, but um, I was always like an art maker, and so I think that that impulse to make art, just the more that I wrote, the more that it transferred to writing, and so it was finally just like a, a writing impulse that I was following. Does that make sense? Um, but I've always just had the art making impulse, and it's had to be something, like it has to be visual, or it has to be writing, or I just sort of feel like something is wrong if I'm not doing it. Do you make art now? I doodle now. <laughs> I doodle. I, but I, I doodle. But I, I do worry that. I guess I have this idea that if I do too much visual art, that then I won't write, and I don't get any money for my visual art. And so it's like I, I did make abstracts for people for Christmas a couple of years ago. I made them all like paintings, and that was the last time I think I did like a big visual art project. Do you want to? Are you asking me about, do I make art? No. <laughs> I wish I had that gift. I play the piano. That's art. I wonder if there are questions in the audience. Oh, yes. Okay, we'll start over here. Um, and I, I'm going to hand them. How is this going to work? 
Do you want, uh, let's see, let's do this. Ask your question, I will um, put it into the microphone and then I'll hand the mic to the authors. So the question is um, how to deal with trauma in, in maybe specifically even in writing. Um, I've had like two really traumatic experiences and well, the one that you know I just talked about here and then one other and what I found that I had to do was um, I had to write about it a lot for myself like first like in a journal because it does feel as if you're sort of writing into minefields like because it feels almost like you're you could be writing into something like toxic almost because it's so upsetting um, so I I felt like I, I went through a long time where I was just um, writing about it for myself like repeatedly, like as much as possible, so that it didn't feel like toxic to me anymore. And then I finally got to a place where when I wrote about it for stories, it was still like charged with a certain kind of energy um, that comes from writing about something traumatic, which I actually like. Like I think that that energy can be really good. Um, but by then, like I had practiced enough, like exposing myself to it, that I could write about it within a world of a story. Um, and it not just sort of like take over everything in the story. Like I had been able to like write about it enough to have like a certain balance with it. Um, it a balance with it. Um, I'm trying to think how to say this. Like um, it didn't overtake the fictional world that I was trying to create with. It was able to sort of coexist with it. So I would just say like try writing about a lot of it in a journal first. And that's how you work into being able to do it for like a fictional story or for an essay that you're going to publish. Um, you're sure, sure. Thanks for that question. Um, anybody else? Yes, right here. So the question is, what was your experience of of this kind of comic experience of looking out at the field and realizing there are lots of people doing great work and really amazing, um, and and where's the place for me in that? I would say don't don't look out there. Like, I still feel that. I look on Twitter or wherever, and I see all these colleagues doing amazing things, and all these people. There's so many books out there, and it, it's it's just discouraging for me. Um, I would say read. You know, go to the classics and just read them all, and um, keep your head down and 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 focus on your own work because you you're an individual and. What you have to say, nobody else will have said in exactly the way you're going to say it. And, and that's what's to remember, is that yes, every, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything's been written, but nothing's been written by you. I, I can't see your name, but you, <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you will have something original to say. It's, it just takes time, and it takes a lot of work and patience. And it, it's really hard. I feel bad for people in the social media generation. And, and I, when I was in college, it didn't exist. So I wasn't seeing all of, you know, everybody's publications all the time and I think it'd be really discouraging now to to know and the I do feel it, the book the world we have, there's too many books being published that's a whole different talk but I, I do feel the market's oversaturated we, we kind of talked about that a little bit last night um I'll say like I feel that now too I didn't when I was when I was in school I actually didn't feel it as much um but I feel it much more now that I'm older um, like what you just said, and what I have noticed, though, I don't, this might work for you, like it works for some people, and it has worked for me occasionally in the past, is like, when you write it, think of someone that you are really interested in or love, like reading it, um, and then it becomes like, you know, that person is interested in like all the intricacies of 
like your thoughts and they know that you're not like any other person and that like you have something valuable to say and they want to know it. And so, I mean, I've occasionally done that where I'm like actually writing to someone and I found that it can occasionally really come alive because it's like somebody that you imagine wants to know all that stuff. Um, and uh, what I tell my students is if you become really interested in it and you become like, you really want to discover like where this is going and you're surprising yourself, then also like that is going to translate to other people. So it's really about sort of like you getting so interested in what you're writing that um, it comes alive and then you forget to ask yourself like, is this important? Like you just know that it is when you get to that point because you need to write it. Does that make sense? Um, Makes a lot of sense, I think. And it makes me think of, I think, is it Isabella Allende who begins every novel as a letter to someone? I think it's her, it is her method of saying, who am I trying to address this to? And then as you invest your imagination in it and it changes, but um, it does make me think of that. Other questions? Yes. So what, the question I hear, tell me if I'm getting this right, but the question I hear is, um, when you come from a really conservative background, it can be difficult to begin to move into, even if you understand intellectually the value, emotionally to move into these more imaginative forms. And, um, and how, do you, how do you begin that process? How do you do that? So I just talked about this for the, an hour this morning. Did you, were you able to come to that talk? So I completely empathize with your, with your difficulty. Um, I, I do see a lot of value in trying, but I also understand that different, as I said this morning, different readers have different tolerance levels based on, on background experiences. Um, another student today after the talk came up to me, and she was in high school, and she said, I read Call Me By, my, Call Me By Your Name, and my family kind of shunned me and wouldn't, you know, were horrified that I would read that book. What, what advice do you have? And I, you know, my advice wasn't don't read, don't read books like that. I, that's certainly, I think that's bad advice, but the advice I would give her is make sure there's someone you can talk to about it. Make sure that you're processing with like-minded people and, and people maybe who will challenge you a little bit in your thinking. Um, but also res respect yourself and respect your own tolerance levels. I think that's also important. And if you find that it's, you're not able to, start small. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll have to think of, of some maybe entry-level sex books <laughs> for you. <laughs> I, would, I'm not, I will not recommend my own books to you. <laughs> I don't know what to say after that. I, don't, um, I think to like, you know, all books aren't like for everyone. And I think that um, there are also like certain books are right for you at certain points in your life. And then like certain books you're gonna look at now and you just can't connect to them or they're too upsetting. But 10 years later, they might not upset you as much. They might just be something like that. You might just find them interesting then and it, you might, so I guess I'm just saying too, you know, like different books are gonna be right for you at different times. And if you feel like in yourself, that a really strong resistance to reading something, I mean, if it, it's different if it's like something you have to read for school, you know what I'm saying? But it's just like, you're you you, you you're just gonna, it's okay like if you don't connect to everything, I think too, um, and just expect to connect to different things at different points in your life. Because like some of the stuff that I like now, 10 years ago, I would have been like, I can't read that. And like that upsets me too much. And of course like now I'm much more sort of like detached 
and disturbed, and it's like, oh, like this is pleasant to read. Is <laughs> that terrible? But, but, so just, yeah, just be patient with yourself too, and try reading different things, and just like realize that in the future, like you might be able to connect to things you don't know. I would, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Is that this a garbled answer? But like, I would just read like what is really going to inspire you, um, and not feel guilty just because you don't like something that you feel like um, maybe like somebody else likes or thinks is valuable. I, have a, I thought of a perfect example for this. Not, not an entry-level book, but I thought of a... So when I, my son was in ninth grade, his English class was assigned to read Fight Club by Chuck Palahniuk. I'm guessing you've probably not read it. It's, got, it's, it's really high in the violence category and, and in others, too. Um, there were some boys in that class that their parents said, they can, my son is not ready at the age of 14 to read Fight Club. And there are other boys in the class who'd already read it and so it just there was there was a vast difference in maturity levels and in, in, in what they were what they were ready for. Um, I taught senior English for a couple years uh, a seminar, and we read Wuthering Heights. And there was a boy in my senior, an eighteen year old, who could not read Wuthering Heights. He had he did not have the tolerance level for that, and it, you know I had to assign him a different book. So so I guess I'm just saying that you know it's it's so individual and and to respect that like I think it's really important to respect that but maybe start with see how you do with Wuthering Heights Have you ever read Wuthering Heights See see how I do with Wuthering Heights see how I get on <laughs> I like that suggestion um, I wonder what's next I mean if taking from your question what's next for you what's out there that you haven't read haven't engaged that you feel like is kind of your own cutting edge in your reading? That you haven't read or haven't engaged. Maybe you read it, but you didn't really, you weren't, you weren't ready for it, but you think it's out there for you yet. The um, already not yet question, I guess. I tried reading Cormac McCarthy's The Road when it came out, and I couldn't. Um, it has to do with cannibalism. Um, and it was just, it was, I was not ready for that. I, there's some Cormac McCarthy that I'm still, so violence is my thing. Violence is my edge that I really struggle with. Um, I love early Cormac McCarthy. I love Outer Dark. I love um, Orchard Keeper. But once it starts getting to um, Blood Meridian, No Country for Old Men, I, I start to struggle more. So I know it's out there for me. Um, I know there's, I know I've never, I really haven't written any kind of violence other than sexual violence in my work. I haven't tapped it. I, I have a very hard time with anything happening to children, anything violent or abusive happening to children. I know it's out there. I had a hard time with Toni Morrison's Beloved because of that, um, I, that opening scene with the, yeah. So yeah, that would, be, that would be my edge. And as a writer in particular, I know I'm gonna have to sort of like chase that duende, that demon, and at some point probably engage in some kind of violence. In fact, the novel I'm working on now, there's a, it's about a sex trafficking victim and there's a, a section with a, in the voice of her pimp. And I know I'm going to have to get into the violence with that. And uh, I'm scared. And I think that's why I wrote Fire Sermon. <laughs> I was cheating on that novel to write Fire Sermon. Um, I'm thinking how to answer that question. I feel like there's a lot of classics that I haven't read that I need to read. Like, I've never finished Moby Dick. Like, Jamie is reading it now. I've been very resistant to ever finishing Moby Dick. Like, my, I've been like, where are the women? There are no women in here. And um, I feel like I do probably eventually need to read that one because it's important. Um, and, and, oh. oh, okay. I'm just not reading it the right way. And I feel like I also like have been, I've so much been reading things that I think are going to 
sort of helped me really directly as a writer, like, um, that I think I probably need to read more things that I'm just reading because they're interesting and that I don't write at the get-go think, like, how is this going to help me, like, write, a st- like, my next fiction? Like, I want to just be reading them to be reading them and, like, enriching my life and, like, reading to be a better person instead of just, like, how can I use this? That's where I would like to move to. Kind of like a professional, what's the word, like a professional... Um liability that you start everything becomes kind of sucked somebody asked me recently do you read for pleasure i was like do i i like my work does that mean i read for pleasure i I really struggled with the answer to that question because everything is sucked into the machine kind of so i appreciate that idea of like what could i read that's out there that's you know that that doesn't make me think how would i do this myself or something yeah any other questions from the audience yes So the, the question is, what role does research play in your writing? It's a great question in the context of fiction. Because obviously for nonfiction, for a talk or an essay, you're going to be doing a lot of research. Um, I find that when I'm re- drafting fiction, research can be a rabbit hole that pulls me away from the work for a really long time. So often when I'm drafting fiction, I will um, make it up. Make, if I'm in a scene and I'm like, oh, I would need to know would a cowboy in 1820 button up his chaps? Would he, would, were zippers, would, would, was, you know, was it ties? How would, how would that work? And if I start researching that, I'm done for the day. So I just kind of throw it in there and maybe put a TK on it and um, come back to it. I have a specific example of a, a short story I wrote called um, uh, Decomposition about a corpse rotting in the marital bed. And I started writing that story knowing nothing about human decomposition. Uh, and I knew I was going to have to research it. But as I was drafting, I didn't want to look at dead bodies and really look at it too much. So I, I made it up. I made up the stages, brief, kind of put my own words to them. And then after I had that written, I went back and kind of made sure and wrote, wrote to somebody, wrote, actually wrote to um, Thomas Lynch, who's a poet and a, he's an awesome, beautiful essayist and mortician. And uh, he vetted it for me. But yeah, it's a, tri- it's a tricky balance, but with, with fiction and nonfiction, very different answers. About research, um, I have not written that much that like requires a whole lot of research. Um, it's more like I might run into something that I need to research, like go onto the internet and like read some articles about, but not like extensive research. Um, I guess like, but I did get advice recently from um, sort of like a, like a friend who. Um, is a professor and who works with a lot of PhD students. And he said that there's, he said for them, there's like so much research that they're never gonna be able to get it all done. And so he tells them to just like write in the morning and then, you know, research in the afternoon. And he says like, you should, he, he says, he advises them to just start doing it before they're ready. He's like, start writing before you're ready because you're never gonna be able to like research everything that you need to. And so as someone who's thinking about like maybe doing more research for something like that was helpful to me, but I know it's not quite the same as writing fiction, but. Um. Well, thank you both so much for being here. Um, thank you everyone for coming. And let's thank the, let's thank April and Jamie for their contribution.
Our thanks to April Ayers Lawson and Jamie Quattro for their honesty in their fiction, and to Amy Frickholm for hosting this conversation. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the Center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.calvin.edu and festival.calvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more from the Festival Archives.